So this week in Washington, D.C., summer has returned with a vengeance. I think it's hitting 97 degrees all week. And I know, Tanya Riley, that is a huge bummer for you because you embraced fall before anybody, really. I think you celebrated the pumpkin spice latte. But do you think maybe we were a little bit premature to rush into fall so quickly? No, I'm like, I think fall is a mindset with the weather as it is these days. We can't rely on cool temperatures to necessarily bring us into the fall spirits. So we have consumerism like pumpkin spice lattes. I personally went out and bought some Halloween decor this weekend. So I don't think fall can ever come too early. And we're past Labor Day now. So summer seems a bit out of the picture. Do you actually like pumpkin spice lattes? I do. I do like them. Oh, I actually sorry. like making them at my house. I buy some okay. for it. The DIY so. pumpkin yeah, spice. DIY. That's the better approach. Well, we can all think about fall. I'm excited about it, but we'll be suffering through with much of the country of the 90 degree temperature this week. But again, thank you for joining us, even though it's hot outside for this episode of Safe Mode. We are going to talk about a really interesting story that you worked on. That published yesterday about mental health and cybersecurity, a big, important topic. And we're also going to hear from Yael Grauer. She's a program manager for a security planner at Consumer Reports and maintains something that is called the Big Ass Data Broker Opt-Out Guide. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. So Tanya Riley, reporter of CyberScoop, Thanks again for joining us. Tell us about this story that published yesterday that gets into this topic of mental health in the cybersecurity industry. I'm really curious about why you wrote this now, what's going on in the space, and you know what you heard from people that you spoke with. Yeah, so I think covering cybersecurity for the past few years, you know, we all see these stories every now and then, especially on social media folks who are suffering from burnout or, you know, various mental health issues. There's been a few instances in the past year, um, past few years of, you know, high profile individuals in the community, unfortunately, you know, dying by suicide. And it's just kind of in some ways this bespoken and unspoken truth that cybersecurity is a really difficult industry to work in mentally and that there aren't always resources to deal with that. So what I wanted to do was give you know, people in the industry a chance to speak about their experiences and what they've endured and also talk to people who are looking for a brighter future and and ways to bring those kind of mental health resources to the industry and and create a new dynamic where burnout, stress, mental health are not these unspoken things and are topics that we talk about. And did you find that inside cybersecurity companies where you have stress and burnout is pretty common, especially after big incidences, big breaches, even throughout COVID, which you talk about in the story. Are you finding that people are beginning to give it the attention and the resources it deserves? 
I think that's a complicated question. It's certainly, you know, big picture, the dynamics are changing, the way the industry and community talks about it are changing. But in terms of specific companies, it really varies. You know, some of the companies I spoke with have made some pushes towards employee resource groups, tackling mental health, you know, internally, managers changing the way they approach things. But in a lot of the stories that I heard from folks, you know, just within the past recent few years, they're still working, you know, 24-7 in these instant response jobs. A lot of it is the nature of the work, too, right? It's not just the companies. We're talking about jobs where, like, maybe your job is to keep a hospital that has been hit with ransomware online. And that's a very, like, life or death kind of situation. And there aren't really, you know, moments where you can stop. A lot of people have compared it to incident response or, or war even, those kind of triage situations. And in fact, some of the research has shown that burnout is just as bad as it was for healthcare providers during the pandemic for some of these incident response jobs. So it, it really varies. But in general, people are still really looking for companies to step up and for the industry to step up to provide things like better mental health care resources, better insurance so that they can actually go see therapists and psychiatrists instead of, you know, talking to a chat app that their work has subscribed to. There's also a mentality shift in the industry, too, that's taking place. I mean, pe people are more willing to talk about these issues, maybe talk within the broader community. There have been panels at some of the bigger cybersecurity conferences to address the stress that is really part of the job. And I, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate just how much stress the person on the other end of the computer trying to keep the network running, keep it safe is really under a lot of the times. Are you finding that that there is a, just a, maybe a more of a sense to speak openly about some of these issues? I think so. I mean, one of the groups that I spoke with for the story, Mental Health Hackers, they got their start in 2018. So a few years ago now, now they posted villages on mental health at dozens of conferences. And that was really kicked off by the founder's keynote at one conference, 2017-2018. And since then, we've seen more panels about mental health on conferences, more conversations online. We've even seen CISA director Jen Easterly speak openly about her family's experiences with mental health and just the, how important it is to the industry and to CISA's own workforce. So we definitely see more public conversation than we did a few years ago. It's it's no longer just this unspoken joke that, okay, if you work in cybersecurity, you're going to have a substance abuse issue, as as one of my sources told me it used to be like. Um, you know, it's it's taken more seriously and there's a lot more openness. And there are, are there some solutions that are that people are working on that you think will make some bit of a difference? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really early to tell with a lot of these projects that have popped up in the past few years. There's an Australian nonprofit, CyberMinds, that I talk about in the story that has worked on this thing called IRIS Protocol, which has been used with the military and kind of is a meditative thing. And they've done a few different pilot programs and have found res pretty good results in terms of reducing burnout and stress and have kind of spread those pilot programs to the U.S. recently. You know, there are companies with their own internal efforts to try to create more open spaces for employees to talk about these things. But in the long term, right, people want to see these real solutions, like better medical insurance, better work hours, these things that are, you know, going to impact people in the day-to-day. -day. Well, I think it's a, it's a really important topic. It's a really great story. Hopefully people will read it and share it. You can find it at cyberscoop.com.
Thanks so much, Tanya Riley. Thanks. And we're going to hear next from Yael Grauer. She is a journalist, researcher. Most recently, she's been working as a program manager at Security Planner at Consumer Reports. We're going to be getting into issues of data brokers, how to remove yourself from the web, and generally what you can do to improve your overall privacy online. Before we get into that, one programming note. Sadly, this is my last episode of Safe Mode. I'm moving on to a new venture. I would love to thank everyone who's been involved with this podcast, especially our producer here, Carlin, our producer in California, Aaron, and the entire CyberScoop team, not to mention Tanya, Elias, Christian, and AJ. And everybody who's been listening and sharing this podcast, thanks very much. So Yael Grauer, fantastic to have you join our podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, I've been a huge fan of your work for a while. I was so happy to see that you have a byline in CyberScoop recently. But I wanted to talk about a lot of the work that you've done on data brokers, because that is a fascinating topic for me, something that I'm always in my professional and personal life battling You've cracked the code, right? You've figured out how everybody can fight and win against data brokers. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I would say that. <laughs> They're so like ubiquitous. And I don't know if there's any way to completely beat them. But I, I help people claw back a little. For people who don't know, let's start at the very beginning. What is a data broker? Basically, there's different sites that sell information that they gather and collect about people. There's different types of data brokers, and the one that I focus on the most is people search sites, where you can actually buy or even look up for free information about somebody, including their address, who they live with, all their social media profiles, and a bunch of other information that a lot of people want to keep private because they don't want to get doxxed or for identity theft and stuff like that. But there's other types of data brokers. There's like fraud prevention is probably the least invasive and harmful. Like when you are applying for a credit card, they verify your information. So that's kind of like the least bad data broker, I think. And then there's like actual credit reports. They gather information for your credit and those are not like that's not some, <laughs> something you can really erase necessarily. You're talking everything from like yellowpages.com to Experian, which are the big, massive data brokers, right, who check our credit. They need access to our information to run credit checks. So if we go buy a car or something, the car dealer can type in Michael Farrell, how bad is your credit? So we can figure out if we want to sell you something. So there's this whole ecosystem of people collecting the data, right? Analyzing it, selling it. Yeah, well, and there's also, there's data brokers that focus on marketing. So they develop these dossiers on individuals so they can tailor marketing to them. And some people are really concerned about that. But for me, I've always been more concerned about, is my address really easily accessible to anybody online? And you can't get rid of that completely either if you own a home or vote. It's really difficult, but you can make it kind of harder to find. I want to talk about the broad ecosystem of data brokers. There are all sorts, right? You mentioned a few. There seem to be some that we as normal consumers can try to avoid. Some that we probably can't unless we want to totally divorce ourselves from modern life never buy anything on a credit card or shop online or join a social media company. 
So if you were to rank them right in order of here are the ones that might pose the most problem and you should worry about to the ones that, well, you're just going to have to deal with it. It's part of life. Mm, oh, that's tough because I think it really depends on the person. I know people who don't mind if their address is public, but for me, I really don't want it to be public. And then some people are really concerned about companies having classifications of them that might increase their um, insurance rates or whatever. Like if you're incorrectly classified as a motorcycle owner or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I, I haven't, I, I don't understand why that's even legal, right? You're going to pay more money because you have some sort of classification based on your behavior or your buying habits or maybe something that you did in the past, like if you had crappy credit when you are in college or something. So all of a sudden you have a higher interest rate. That should be illegal, I think. Oh, I, I agree. Actually, Consumer Reports is doing work on this around car insurance. We don't think you should have to pay more for car insurance based on your credit. I don't know how likely it is for this to become illegal. <laughs> like, it seems like... I'm guessing it's not yeah. very likely. I feel like there are a lot of invested interests in making it not illegal. Yeah. But anyway, so like, okay, let's think about the ones, the data brokers that are making it possible for me to Google you to figure out your street address, who your relatives are, your old addresses, right, for the past five years. Why are you so worried about that? I mean, I think it's creepy, but I guess I also, I've written articles where people didn't like them and I don't want them to come to my house. And some of these people are not smart enough to know, oh, I can find the homeowner's address by the county. I just try to reduce that footprint. And that's for homeowners. If you rent, that's not public necessarily, unless you vote. And then it depends by the state. So it's like really hard to get yourself off completely. But I like to make it harder for people to find me. We've heard stories of people who get harassed and then their family members get harassed. So like having a list of associates, that's just kind of disturbing. So you have a list, right, that you've put together of all the data brokers. What is it called? Yeah, it's called the Big Ass Data Broker Opt-Out List. And the acronym is Bad Bull, which I think is really funny, though I didn't do it on purpose. And so that's a, a resource that you are working on. Is, is that through Consumer Reports? No, I actually did that on my own. I started it in 2017 because back then there was only a few paid services where you could remove your information and they weren't comprehensive. And some people didn't want to pay for those services or they wanted to kind of double check everything. I noticed that there was no like central resource that was up to date. There was a few floating around, but none of them were up to date. And I wanted it to make it, it's still not easy because it takes forever to do, but I wanted to make it easier for people to know, like, here's how I opt out of all these sites. These are the ones I should start with and just keep that up to date because they'll keep changing. Like they keep getting bought out or they'll change how you can opt out. But what we are doing through Consumer Reports is we're doing some testing to see which of the paid services might be more effective. If you are going to pay for a service to do this for you, which one should you use? So like Delete Me is one, for example, that I know about. And, and these are services, right, where you pay, a, what, an annual or monthly subscription fee, and they go around doing all the work for you to remove yourself from people brokers. I'm not trying to plug any company but they do because it can be it's a real pain in the neck, right, to have to figure out how to remove yourself from every opt out list. Yeah. 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 So are they working? Are they do they tend to do what they advertise that they're doing? A lot of them will show you like this is what I've done. Here's a screenshot. You do have to do some work for some of them. Canary that I've used will ask you, like, is this you? Do you want this removed? And I'm like, no, it's OK if my email is on my own personal website. <laughs> That's fine. But 
yeah, I guess we want to kind of see like which of them are more effective over time and like how quickly does it take to work? Because a lot of them are automated processes. And so nobody's ever really looked at which ones are better. And I'm dying to find out what our results end up being because I want to know what to recommend. So let's go, go back quickly just to the address thing. There have been cases of real harm committed to people whose addresses have been found online. And, and maybe you could talk about some of those cases. I mean, one of them involves swatting, right? Which is this horrible thing when someone calls 911 and says, oh, Mike Farrell, who lives here, he's got a gun and he's going to shoot people and the police come and with their guns out, it, you can imagine it's a horrible situation if it ever happens to you. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and other issues that are real examples of just the readily available nature of addresses on the internet. Yeah, that's kind of the most extreme example, I think. But people have had pizzas sent to them or things mailed to their house. But I had, somebody posted my address online once on a comment. He didn't like an article I wrote. I was an MMA writer and I wrote something critical about a fighter that he liked and he found my address and posted Okay, it you were an MMA writer? Okay, that's yeah. a whole other podcast situation <laughs> we're going to have to explore in a second. My side, my side. Hustle. Okay. No, I wrote about MMA and I, uh, people get very weird about the fighters that they're obsessed with. And I wrote something critical and he got really mad and posted my address in the comments. Luckily, I could delete that comment because I had access to delete it. I'm like, should I be worried about this? A lot of it is trying to decide, is this like a, an unsafe situation or just some idiot online? And so I prefer to prevent it from happening. So that person really went in deep and doxed you essentially. Which doxing, for those who don't know, right, and correct me if I'm wrong, is publishing personal information, personally identifiable information on the internet to sort of, in a way, to threaten or harass you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's ways to remove, like, people always ask me, like, oh, my address got doxed. What can I do? It's on some sketchy paste bin or something. And I don't know if you can remove it from paste bins, but you can remove it from Google search. There's ways to sort of handle it. But I think the hard part is sometimes you know when there's a threat and sometimes this person's just dumb. But like sometimes it's like that in-between zone where you're like, should I leave my house or am I overreacting? That is a hard place to be. So right now we're in the situation where it's either people fighting against this data broker industry, or you can, if you have money, you can maybe hire somebody to do it for you. And I think the cost of that kind of depends on just how much you want removed and how often you want these sort of removal services to be looking for your information. Maybe if you're a high value target or something, you pay more if you're a celebrity or something like that. But you would think that this might be something that policymakers would also weigh in on and offer some kind of legal protection to protect privacy. Is the data broker, we'll say a problem, right? I think it's fair to say it's a problem. Something that is as part of privacy legislation, either at the federal level or at the state level? There are some state bills that are pretty good. The FTC wrote a report and it was a really long time. I'd have to look up the date, but they wrote a report saying these are our recommendations and there's been no legislation that followed these pretty solid recommendations about like, you know, there should be one opt out for all these sites. <laughs> People should tell you where they got your information from. But I don't know, even with the laws that are out there, like a lot of them have these loopholes where they're like, oh, if information is public, it's okay for companies to use it. 
I think it would be great if there was like comprehensive privacy legislation across the board. But yeah, it's happened in states, but even in some states, people try to fight it and shut it down. Like I actually testified to a committee about a privacy legislation in Arizona, though it was more about biometrics, but it was like shut down. It was like behind closed doors, like shut down. I think the biggest issue is, is like there's so much money involved. These companies want to like sell and share this information or list derivative information based on it. And also like the government uses addresses. Politicians want these addresses available for campaigning reasons. So that makes it kind of more difficult. At CyberScoop, we cover this quite a bit around the issues of the comprehensive federal privacy legislation. It certainly doesn't look like it's going to be happening anytime soon. And as you know, there's just a tremendous amount of opposition against it and a lot of money in this debate. This is such a lucrative industry, right, to collect data, sell data. Do you ballpark just how big the data broker industry is in terms of money? Oh, gosh, I don't know in terms of money, but I think about like in terms of accounts and especially when those accounts get hacked. When Axiom was hacked, I think it was like 2003, there was like 1.6 billion records that were stolen. Like that's insane. It's like hard to kind of get a handle of the industry overall. All these data brokers are constantly buying each other or folding. And there's probably some that I don't even know about that sell privately. The other interesting thing that we've been tracking is what's the relationship around the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. And there's been a lot of concern around reproductive data, information that states can glean from apps that are period tracking apps or other health apps to perhaps track to see if somebody who lives in a state where abortion is now illegal or very limited has maybe traveled to another state to have an abortion. What are you seeing on that front? Is that becoming a real issue? Are there been cases where states have gone after to try to get access to some of this data? I've seen targeted ads that were directed to people based on location data. And I know like Google said it would remove location data, but it hasn't done so consistently according to some reporting I've read. But as far as people getting arrested, like I think it's still you are texting your friend and your friend calls the cops or like you are posting on Facebook Messenger, like unencrypted chat. People were really concerned about period tracking apps, but I think the real way that people are getting burned is through like unencrypted chat and just word of mouth. I know a lot of people were really worried about period tracking apps, but I'm not sure I understand. It's not like clockwork, believe it or not. Like, I don't think people would get arrested for missing a cycle. I haven't seen that happen yet. I don't know if it's out of the realm of possibility, but I just haven't seen that used in that way. There's some really good articles about it. Do you guys have show notes? I can send you the links. Oh, yeah. We're going to have all the notes. We're going to have links to your MMA articles in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you more about that, but I know nothing about MMA. I know that it looks horrifying and I'm frightened by it. And yeah, I don't understand why anyone would ever want to do that. (laughs) I was learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I'm really bad at, even though I trained for a really long time. But I wanted to see, like, are the things I learned, like, actually, how do they work against resisting opponents? And I'm like, oh, if I write about this, I could get in the front row for local events. But yeah, it was really horrible writing. Like, I wouldn't recommend writing about MMA because everybody thinks it's like a hobby. And so you're like, paid really badly and working long hours. And whenever I did any interviews, I'd always get comments. I'm one of those people who reads all the comments. And I'm like, great. 
people, I don't know. I, I always think there might be something I could learn from one of them. So. No, there's nothing you can learn. I mean, occasionally, maybe one out of a hundred. I feel like if there's somebody who wants to tell you something, they're just going to email you. Yeah, maybe. I did want to ask you about memory safety. So, I mean, one of the things that you've written at Consumer Reports, which is very cool, right? You're able to do work as a journalist, but you also sort is it fair to say you sort of step into a little bit of an advocacy role when you're talking about technology and things that technology companies should be doing to protect consumers? Yeah, I technically am not in the content team at Consumer Reports and I work on Security Planner. And so we give people recommendations on things they can do to improve their cybersecurity. And then sometimes we recommend action, sometimes we recommend tools, but with memory safety, like there was nothing we could recommend. Like it just, we need industry change to be able to even get to a point where we could make recommendations. And I just saw it as this thing that all my tech friends were talking about. And I'm like, this is a consumer issue that nobody knows about and we should really amplify it. I mean, people have been working on this for a really long time. But yeah, a lot of us kind of were amplifying it at the same time. But it was really cool because we set up a convening and talked to like a bunch of experts and wrote up the things we did agree on. So what breakdown, for those that don't know, what is memory safety? So memory safety is a term that that's used to describe whether software or programming language is designed to prevent memory bugs and vulnerabilities when a program mismanages memory. I mean, you could go into the technical details about like, these are the different types of memory. There's memory that's not being used, isn't released. So there's less memory or there's buffer overflows or pointers point to memory, which has been deallocated. But I think the important part is that like most vulnerabilities, like 60 to 70% of browser and kernel vulnerabilities are because of memory safety, because people are using C and C++ code bases. And they can solve this whole category of vulnerabilities by just switching to memory safe languages, which I said just, but it's actually a pretty heavy lift depending on how much code you have. You can figure out what do I need to secure the most in this app to keep people safe? And how can I address that? You don't have to do everything all at once. And so like we wrote this report kind of to talk about the challenges and like next steps and why it's important and what we recommend. It gets to a bigger issue, right? That most of the code that's written for the applications that underpin all of daily life, right? We're not necessarily written, created with safety in mind first. So, I mean, what you're suggesting is people start doing that, which is a very good idea. Why are we just now thinking about, well, there are all these different ways to sort of create secure by design products or write software with memory safe code, that sort of thing? That's a good question. I mean, I think Sys is doing a lot to really amplify secure by design, but people have been working on memory safety for a really long time. I think the reason it's kind of come to head is because there's better alternatives than there have been. Like people can use Rust. A lot of things that were a lot difficult, almost impossible to do. And now there's suddenly, I mean, there's other memory safe languages, but Rust just has capabilities that people who have code bases in C and C++ can use. Um, so Rust is a is what exactly? Rust is a programming language that's memory safe. Are any of the big companies starting to adopt these languages? Yeah, we've seen some really cool changes from Google, Mozilla, even Amazon. Mozilla began migrating third-party libraries to WebAssembly while also rewriting 
parts of Firefox and Rust. That's kind of cool. There's like Linux kernel support now for Rust. I don't think it's happening fast enough. Like I would want to see more, but we have seen movement. Yeah. So what do you use personally like to keep yourself secure? I know you're on Signal. Are you, do you use a certain browser? Do you have other sorts of apps that you would recommend that people who want to build security into their daily routine use? I basically follow all the recommendations on securityplanner.org, <laughs> which I have to pitch. But I use a I use a YubiKey for MFA. I have an app called iVerify on my iPhone. I just happen to have an iPhone. I don't like there's like ongoing debates about whether iPhone and Android is more secure, but honestly. I just use an iPhone because I'm used to it and it's easier for me to use. I use a couple of tracker blockers. Like I use uBlock Origin to block trackers and also Privacy Badger, which EFF created. And that kind of stops sites from being able to follow you across the web. I do use Signal. I use Signal a lot. I use Signal disappearing messages. My really obsessive thing that I do if I'm really worried about a project is like putting it on a Chromebook. People get really mad at me when I talk about Chromebooks because they're like, oh, you're shilling for Google. (laughs) If somebody else came up with an alternative that was as secure and easy to use as a Chromebook, I would recommend that too. So you think Chromebook is more secure than Apple, like an Apple laptop? There's things about Chromebooks that I think are really, I don't know if I can say more secure or less secure, but like automatic updates and like just things that you don't have to worry about. It's also like way less expensive. So if you're a journalist and you want a different computer for specific projects, you can pick up a Chromebook for a few hundred bucks. It's not feasible to get a MacBook for each project. I have a signal number for tips, like a tip line, and that's just an old Android phone and a Chromebook because the Chromebooks are updated. They're supported for so long. And then I just use that for one project, which is some of those signal messages. Well, I've ta- we've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. I want you to tell our many millions of listeners where they can follow you. I know you mentioned you're on Twitter, you're on Mastodon, you're on and Blue Sky, which I also want to hear whether you think that's actually going to last. Yeah, I know. I'm on Twitter at Yael Writes, Y-A-E-L-W-R-I-T-E-S. And I'm on Yael Writes at Mastodon.social. And I'm on Blue Sky and I like Blue Sky. I'm sad that it's not open because I want to invite all my friends. I wish they would just give me 50 invite codes like they have with some people. I like the vibe of it. I don't really know if it's going to be the next Twitter. I know Instagram wants to roll something out. So that'll be, I always think it's so funny when people are like, I quit Facebook, but I'm still on Instagram. I've made a clean break from both. (laughs) I'm gone. I quit Instagram. All right, Yael. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. All right, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends, your mom or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.